before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you, a lot of times it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money, it was here, it was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Welcome, everybody, to another super terrific happy hour. Uh, and the ingredient that makes it all three of those oh, things please. is my co-host, of course, <laughs> the effervescent and illuminous Stephanie Pomboy. That's, Steph. that's pressure. That's real pressure. Um, uh, listen, it's pressure you've dealt with your whole life. Don't, uh, don't mind about it. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. How about you? Well, I I, I had a something shoved up my nose this morning. Um and hopefully, if it comes back all clear, they will cut the tracker bracelet off me and I will be allowed to walk to out leave into your house. <laughs> fresh Yes, I know. Uh, After two weeks of climbing the walls, which, uh, which will be, I have to say, a huge relief. I'm not going to deny that it sent me slightly batty. You're, you're such a menace to society. They finally locked you down. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, 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 if I keep getting positive COVID tests coming back every every few days just to keep me in here then i'll know that it really was a case of menace to society yeah. <laughs> so um listen we have we have a mutual friend of ours joining us uh today um sure do. The great john hathaway who you and i've both known for a long, a long time. time you yeah. probably better than me seeing as your proximity to him out in the out in the wild west yeah. but um you know john is john is I, 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 do people get offended if you call him a doyen i'm not sure <laughs> i don't think i would be i think i think if you've been around long enough to be achieve doyen status that's a good thing isn't it i would think so but you know i as a female maybe i have a different threshold on what it's what's appropriate well, you'd be to be a, called so <laughs> yeah true well you, you, you you'll be a doyette one day i presume <laughs> or is it doyen two ends and an e on, on the female version. i'm not sure but anyway john hathaway is without question one of the doyens of the uh of the gold market. I mean, John's been around for a long, long time. He's managed um, money in the gold space for 20 plus years. Um, and so, you know, Steph and I had a fantastic chat with him today. And the reason uh, I'm telling you that we recorded this in the past is because we had all kinds of stuff going on today. We had dogs, we had poor <laughs> internet connections, we had police sirens. It was really quite the, uh, uh, quite the experience. You know, I hate to pull this one again, but Mercury is in retrograde again. <laughs> Listen, what I need, I need someone to tell me when it isn't in retrograde, because it seems to be in retrograde all the damn time. We have to schedule these a little better. We're, we're going to have to consult the uh, the astrologist before we record our podcast yeah, from now You're on. right. We need an in-house astrologer. That's how very bull market is that, an in-house astrologer. Right. Perfect. Well, I tell you what, why don't we, uh, why don't we just... Uh, uh, get to the important part where you and I chat to John and then we can reconvene afterwards. What do you think? That sounds splendid. Here is our chat with the great John Hathaway. Well, John, welcome to the super terrific happy hour. I hope you're feeling uh, all three this morning. <laughs> well, thank you. It's a little early here for happy hour, but, you know, I guess it's five o'clock somewhere. Right. Always. <laughs> That's the beauty of five o'clock. It's always that somewhere. Um, I, I th- and, and it's Friday, so it's Friday. You can start yeah. early. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. So, John, what what, what um, the subject at hand today is uh, is one dear to all three of our hearts, and that's gold. And um, what I'd love to start off by doing, if I can, because there will be people out there somehow who are unfamiliar with your storied career, and so I'd love to go right the way back and and give people a snapshot of of what brought you into the gold space and, and what the kind of environment looked like at that time? Because I, I suspect when we get further on into this conversation, it's going to be a really useful reference for people. Sure. Um, 1998, I had just uh, joined forces with my old friend Robert Kleinschmidt at Tocqueville Asset Management. And uh, as a contrarian firm, which we basically were value-oriented, we found ourselves very out of sorts with what was going on in the markets in those days, uh, obviously, dot-coms, telecoms, all, all of the things that were very popular were things that we 
couldn't bring ourselves to. And uh, in a brainstorming session, I blurted out, well, maybe we should launch a gold fund that would show our true colors. And, you know, we're very small then. So we were all sitting around a small conference room table and everybody started laughing uh, when I mentioned (laughs) it. And then our our founder, Francois Sicard, said, you know, John, that's not such a bad idea. And he said, we'll seed it with some of our capital and a few clients. And since you brought it up, you'll you be the manager. <laughs> what? <laughs> what I got myself into? Um, you asked for it. You got it. Yeah. And I, yeah. Exactly. So be careful what you uh, when you blurt out, you know, something off the top of your head. But anyway, <laughs> um, and I haven't really learned that lesson very well since. But so we launched the Tocqueville Gold Fund with ten million dollars. It was a mutual fund in June of 1998, and at its peak we grew to 3 billion and that was about 10 years later maybe a little bit longer 2011 so it was a great run and i thought what was going to be a part-time job i basically took all of my time i did it yeah. at first by myself and then i hired doug grove i think it was probably 03 or so and then we added a few more but it became very important to the firm and uh Frankly, you know, for a guy who used to be a value investor, going back to the my David J. Green days in the late 1970s, and as a generalist, uh, and then before that, I was at Spencer Trask, where we believed that the higher the better. We you know, believed in desert island stocks, where you could you could um, go away to a desert island and come back, and everything would be great. The trouble, or or one decision stocks, one decision stocks. Yeah. Obviously, but Spencer Trask, it was the wrong decision because if you bought Avon or Polaroid or Kodak <laughs> and thought of it as a desert island stock, right. you get back to a very happy outcome. So that, you had a chance yeah. to get out of those Kodak last year, don't forget, or earlier this year, <laughs> finally. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of like a, a quick survey of my, uh, how many decades now, um, 1970 to, till now. So a bunch of years. Um, but basically just gold since 1998. And um, it was great for 10 years, 11 years. Uh, then we went through nuclear winter from 2012 until really until about 2018. A lot of the competition dropped by the wayside. And at, at, I guess at the end of 18, we were one of the few people standing. And, and my partner, um, for various reasons, thought that Tocqueville should not be in the, inter, in the institutional business anymore. Clients weren't sticky, et cetera, et cetera. He saw the gold fund go from $3 billion down to about a billion. So, and, and he felt the same way about some of the other. We, were, we, have a very, we had a very good international fund or international value. We sold that, and we started a process for the gold fund. And there were a few bidders surprisingly. And one of them, the one that had the best terms and the best deal was Sprott. So as of January 2020, we are now, my team and myself, all of our clients uh, are part of Sprott Asset Management. And for anyone who who might not know, Sprott is 100% devoted to the precious metal space. Uh, I have uh, at my Disposal now, uh, something I didn't have at Tocqueville, a number of very good analysts, some very good geologists. Uh, Sprott has investment banking capabilities in the space. They also have a lending capacity, and they also have um, closed-end funds that are backed by physical metals. So we were kind of soup to nuts, and the missing piece was active management of mining stocks, which is what we brought to the table. So that's, that's where we are today. You, you, could, you could credit Sprott. We're buying at the low. I think they did. In my case, it worked out very well. So I'm looking forward to the, this next leg of the bull market. It's amazing how more than 20 years after you started the fund at Tocqueville uh, or, or you came up with the idea, it's still being met with snickers of derision, even though it's performed so well relative to you know the, the conventional asset groups that people really focus on. Um, it's sort of quietly really done quite well. 
Do you feel um, from your new vantage point at Sprott, do you get a window into um, flows and whether, you know, there's a real shift where people are, where you're getting real money buyers in here who are interested in the space? You know, we always point out, I, I point out, that gold has outperformed every other asset class or the other asset classes since 2000. So back to your mm-hmm. early observation, that it's it's often amuses me that 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 it gets so little. There's so little recognition of that, and um, we could come back to that. But the fact of the matter is that you know having outperformed S and P and having outperformed bonds, and obviously it's up in dollars substantially. Um, there's very little interest in it. Uh, even even now, you know, we could talk about why that is, but that's the that's the fact that it's still considered to be a fringe strategy, mm-hmm. maybe even lunatic fringe. But it's but it's yeah, uh, it's definitely not mainstream. And I've I've been trying to make the case, and you know, there've been others as well. Some of our uh, mutual friends, uh, Dan Tapiero mm-hmm. would be a good example, uh, but there are others that bonds basically can't do the job anymore of diversifying conservative portfolios where you're trying to balance equity and balance equity risk. And we could talk about that. It would be an interesting conversation. But the fact of the matter is that that bonds, because they're at the zero bound now, basically it's return-free risk. I see more and more people using that. I have to credit Jim Grant with coming up with that. Jim Grant, yeah. Everybody uses it uh, now. And, you know, so what's going to fill the void? And gold basically has years of history. You could say uh, millennia, you know, for thousands of years. It, it's been a, a very effective risk diversifier. I, I believe and I, I, uh, that gold will eventually, and, you know, maybe sooner rather than later is the way things are shaping up, fill some of that, va- that vacuum that bonds, bonds have vacated. Mm-hmm. And if you do the, the math on it, and I just wrote this and sent both of you my, my, yeah. my latest article, the inflows into uh, physically backed gold ETFs this year have, have, have exceeded, this is year to date, have exceeded any previous year. And uh, I believe the number is somewhere in the 900, yeah, 900 billion, I think. Uh, and, and it worked out to around 900 metric tons. And that sounds like a lot, but it's a drop in the bucket because and I did some some research on this. There, there's around a hundred trillion of assets under management by various kinds of managers, uh, pension funds, banks, mutual funds, and so forth. And if you just hypothesize that maybe one percent of that hundred trillion moves into gold because of the vacuum that bonds have created. Well, that would require at current prices the next six years of annual global gold production. <laughs> and the market simply can't clear at that price. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to hypothesize uh, inflation or deflation. All you have to say is bonds are stuck at the zero bound. Maybe they go to negative nominal yields. That That's a speculative bet, but they could. But I think most conservative investors probably would would shy away from that, but um, you know, gold. You know, you look at the you look at the record since two thousand, and you say, well, you know, that's probably not a bad place to diversify equity risk. And in my mind, this is just back of the envelope kind of numbers. The market can't clear if you hypothesize a hundred one percent of a hundred trillion moving into gold at nineteen hundred dollars. It more mm-hmm. likely clears at five to ten thousand. Depends on the timing, depends on a lot of things. But as long as bonds stay pinned to zero interest rates, which is, seems to me to be a reasonable bet, it, it isn't hard to imagine gold prices going up three to four, five-fold from where we are today without necessarily end-of-the-world scenarios. John, John, there's a bunch of things I, I want to come back to on that, particularly this this idea about bonds and being unable to diversify portfolios anymore. But um, before we get to that, I, I, I want to take you back again to that crazy idea you had to launch the, the Tocqueville uh, Gold Fund. Um, and just explain for people listening 
uh, the conditions around you? Because at the time, it would have seemed like a crazy idea, but perhaps you could just describe the kind of state of the gold market, the mood, the, the condition of a lot of the companies, the balance sheets, a lot of the problems that there were around that time, because there were a lot. I mean, it, it, even for gold guys, it would have been a crazy idea. Yeah, the gold, the gold business, first, first of all, two things. The, the market environment was very similar to what we have today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's just sort of the general euphoric mood of the financial markets. The gold business had come out of a long period of low profitability. Many of the mining companies were being managed by financial engineers. Peter Monk comes to mind at Barrett, uh, and I think others followed suit, that gold was just another commodity pretty much like aluminum or zinc or iron ore. And so a lot of the large producers thought it was very smart to sell gold forward. They had you know, reserves in the ground that would be produced over the coming years, and it was just simply an arbitrage. You, know, you, could, you could play the yield curve and get a forward price on gold that was higher than spot today, you know, because in that, those days you had a yield curve that had, was steeply sloped, more steeply sloped. So the forward price of gold looked pretty attractive relative to um, spot. And then the only issue was to produce it at costs that were held under control. That was the theory of the whole idea. But what that did was bring future supply of gold forward and it effectively depressed the spot price. And in, in addition to that, central banks also decided that gold was not worthy of their balance sheets and uh, it was a non-yielding asset. And so uh, they really, uh, I, I would say this probably started in the mid-1990s, selling gold, leasing gold uh, to get uh, some return. And the combination of those things and the general opinion of gold at that time was extremely negative. And so I think that combination of factors, the uh, supply of future gold that would be produced plus exist existing gold that was on the balance sheets of the central banks, essentially drove the gold price down to, I remember it very well, uh, the UK was among those that wanted to sell and, and Gordon Brown was the finance minister, I believe. And UK dumped a couple hundred tons of gold on the market when it was trading around 250. And that is, will forever be known as the brown bottom in the gold price. <laughs> and that led to the Washington Accord, in which the central banks agreed to sell only X amount of gold for a period of years. I believe it was five years. That marked the turn in, in, a, in basically what was a 20-year bear market in gold. It had peaked out around 1980 at $800 US when Volcker put the you know, screws to inflation. So, so we all remember, some of us remember, not everybody listening with what it was like then. And basically gold took it on the chin for 20 years. So that was our start. You know, I guess luck always helps, but we, we collectively agreed that Gold was completely out of favor. It fit with our contrarian philosophy and hence the Tokyo Gold Fund. And I guess those forces that conspired to push gold lower have now reversed in terms of, you know, central banks are no longer selling gold. They're Yeah, they're net buyers. Uh, central banks buying, are net buyers. Right. And the mining companies have also stopped this practice of uh, wantonly selling forward production, yeah, haven't they? Yeah, there's, there, there's no kind of gratuitous selling of gold forward just to generate revenue for the balance sheet. Uh, you do see some selective forward selling, you know, typically to bring a new gold mine into production, bankers might require some hedging. So you see it that way. But it's not like just selling gold and, and, and hedging the or hedging future gold. And I believe there were some companies that were well over 50%, maybe even 70% hedged at low prices. And it, I mean, it's kind of an interesting story because what happened is that the price of producing gold went up and the gold price went up. And so, and so companies that had to deliver into hedge books at prices that they had agreed to maybe three to four years before, 
were losing money on deliveries. And it led in the case of, in, in one company, um, Ashanti, a bankruptcy. And in the case of Barrick, you know, again, going back to Peter Monk, financial, great financial engineer that he was, and he was in cahoots with Goldman and all, I mean, these it was the bankers, it was like a, a frenzy of, of, of selling that left Barrick with uh, a, a hedge book that was losing money. Maybe, I can't remember the exact years, but four or five years later, they had to um, basically defease the hedge book by issuing debt to buy in and to restructure what essentially was a bad debt to the Goldman Sachs and the JP Morgans of the world. So it's a great lesson in financial engineering and group thinking. Um, and again, kind of it, it goes to Graham's question, goes back to the atmosphere that prevailed in those dark days, 1998, 1999. And so what we've seen since then is, it, you know, it kind of started with the, uh, the dot-com crisis, the the um, dawn of radical monetary experimentation by central banks, and that's why I like to go back to 2000 when we when we show, uh, because that to me is one that is that that was the thing that changed the market for for financial assets and also for for gold, and and what I think we're in now is a steady march. It hasn't been steady. I'll have to say it was an unsteady march because we had a, we did have, you know, after 2011, we had this nuclear winter of about five or six years. Once they, you know, and I thought I quoted, I quoted Kevin Warsh, who's a very smart guy who wrote a great op-ed yeah. in the journal. It was back in early September. And he basically said that once, once you, once an institution embarks on a path that the Fed has embarked on, and of course, all the other central banks of the world are doing the same thing. And we could talk about fiscal policy in a second. There's no turning back. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, and you've just looked at, you know, each iteration of QE has been bigger. And the current one, I guess it's QE5, is 120 billion a month, 1.4 trillion a year of balance sheet expansion. And if anyone thinks that there's not going to be another QE, they're absolutely smoking pot, you know, as we do here in Colorado. (laughs) 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 Well, much less any unwind of this balance sheet, you know, this notion that they had that they were actually going to be able to to uh, unwind the balance sheet or be like watching paint dry. It's amazing that they it seemed like the Fed actually believed that internally. I'm sure Kevin Warsh, had he been there, yeah, would have yeah, said Kevin, I'm sure, <laughs> you know, it was that's probably why he didn't get picked as Fed chairman. Powell is basically, you know, the puppy dog for the Treasury and, you know, doing their bidding. And, you know, basically what it has, has led to is the emasculation of the Fed as, a, as an independent institutional factor in determining interest rates and monetary policy. And, 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 and so that has, that has repercussions all over the place. It has repercussions in terms of valuation of financial assets. It has enabled uh, fiscal spending of a magnitude that nobody would have dreamed of even five years ago. And, um, you know, what I think the gold market is fishing out, sensing, is that this there's absolutely no way of turning back. And our, our mutual friend Lacey Hunt says the only way out of this is an is extended period of austerity. And lots of luck with that. You know. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, uh, What's that word? Austerity. Yeah. <laughs> belt tightening. Remember belt tightening? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It, it looks, the austerity is one thing. Extended is, an, is right. a completely yeah. different yeah. factor. I mean, actually, this year we've seen austerity. Stephanie, you pointed that out in this last article. So, you know, their savings are up. People have held back on spending. So maybe we do get a, a burst of um, inflation. That's probably why the yield curve is steepening a little bit. But this is all, you know, picking up dimes before bulldozers. I mean, it doesn't change the bigger picture, but probably, you know, maybe we do get a few months of higher inflation because of the, these supply chain interruptions and, you know, a number of things you could, you could bring to bear. But ultimately, um, you know, the, the, the Fed has to keep interest rates right there at the zero bound. 1.77% is the average interest rate on 20, what, 25 trillion. 
Yeah. Right. If rates went up by 1%, I mean, that would just, you know, think, think of what that would do to the, not only the, this already crazy budget deficit, but what would, you know, what, what would be the repercussions in, in the uh, junk market or the, yeah, the corporate space, it would be annihilated. Space. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So again, this is just, it's a matter of just watching this, this train wreck kind of go down at, you know, a very slow speed. And yet the investment consensus still thinks they can bring it back under control. That's, that's the thing that absolutely drives me nuts. That's incredible. Uh, you know, there's facts that just came out and uh, uh, noted that analysts expect a 12% increase in the S&P over the next 12 months. And this is what we're up against. I mean, when we talk about, and uh, we should go into it, this uh, trade-off between stocks, bonds, or gold as, you know, uh, a new rival for bonds as the as the safe haven. Because right now, that's not... You know, no one's really thinking about that as a long-term investment thesis. You know, stocks are still the place to be, and they're right. going to go up twelve percent, and the deficit's going to go back down to one trillion a year, and the Fed's going to shrink its that balance sheet. Great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah, that is that's kind of like the prevailing. We have a guy across the street here in Vail on Potato Patch. We call him. This, this shall not be recorded, I'm sure, but we call him <laughs> Bloomberg Barrett. He's on Bloomberg. <laughs> He's on Bloomberg about once every two weeks, and that's you know, that's kind of like his. Uh, that's that's his cooling. Um, he said we have a cordial so, neighborly relationship, but. <laughs> um, well, so John, let's let's talk a little bit about this about the macro backdrop then for gold. We've talked about uh, a little bit around it, but but you wrote a really good piece. Um, Right this week, I guess, just talking about the simple math of gold, and so uh, as all that's fresh in your mind, I'd love you to kind of lay out that thesis because this is the thing that struck me about gold over the years: is when you when you boil it down, it it's such a simple thing to understand gold. If if you can if you can park the idea that it doesn't produce a yield, it's just a lump of metal. Right? If you mm -hmm. can just get past that first part of the jigsaw, the case becomes very compelling and actually very very simple quite quickly so perhaps you could just kind of walk us through that that simple math um equation of yours so people can understand where you're coming from right okay first and foremost gold has uh has an outstanding record of being uncorrelated with financial assets and off the top of my head i, I can't remember the numbers but uh if you stack gold up against bonds, real estate, other commodities, equities, it has a very low correlation with them. Now, that also can mean that during a bull market in financial assets that gold would underperform. But certainly in periods of stress and over long periods of time, as we've talked about uh, in, this, in this chat, a uh, 20-year uh, cycle, it performs very well. Bonds can no longer do the job for reasons that we've talked about, but just to reiterate, it's hard to imagine bonds, particularly at the short end, trading much more than very low, you know, the zero bound. You know, the longer end is a different discussion, but uh, at the short end, bonds, so, so bonds which have traditionally been the diversifier of choice to balance equity risk in conservative portfolios no longer does the job. And so asset allocators must be thinking, what else can we do? Now, you know, this is not to say that there aren't super smart investors, many, most of whom you've had on your podcast, haven't been able to generate very good returns. But we're talking about 100 trillion of AUMs and growing at a you know, pretty good clip, which you know, can't hire... Um, you know, a Druckenmiller or, or uh, a Dalio or, or Klarman, you know, people like that, that, you know, they're just not available. So they have to basically accept generic returns to meet pension fund obligations, beneficiary retirement obligations, that sort of thing. And so they have to kind of, they're, they're stuck with the generic uh, return that you get in asset classes. And if you, if you look forward uh, and say that bonds can't do the job, and you're going to own equities, which is the uh, is generally where you get your alpha. 
they're pretty risky these days. You know, I've referred to the valuations of the market today versus 2000, and they're very, very similar. And in, in fact, in some cases worse. So I'm thinking if I'm an asset allocator, you know, and I'm, I'm aware of this and I'm not drinking too much of the Kool-Aid on Bloomberg and CNBC, got to do something. You know, what is that something? Well, gold is, you know, front and center as one of the answers. There may be other answers, but gold certainly is one of the answers. And so, and we've seen some of this. We saw... Um, it was an Ohio pension or one of them? I'm sorry? Ohio, I think it was yeah. Ohio, yeah, Ohio pension that started... Yeah, Ohio you know. uh, pension, you know, it was the uh, police and firemen's pension plan, who, which is which is advised by Wilshire Associates, which, which, which I'm guessing advises trillions of dollars mm-hmm. in asked you know pension fund assets in the public space i'm guessing anyway they they got they they said five percent is what it is now how they implement that we don't know but to me that was like boy that's the first i hate to use yep. the word green shoot but that <laughs> was certainly a sign of what i think is things to come and i mean it, it's not like everybody's on board in fact, nobody's on board. I can tell you that. Just um, you know, being at Sprott, we see flows, the kinds of flows into physical metal that exist, and they typically are they almost can guarantee you that there isn't a state pension fund among them mm-hmm. yeah. making that allocation. They're sort of family offices, individual investors, you know, people who can make quick decisions. You know, don't need consultants to do their thinking or to paper over decisions. So we're just at the very beginning of seeing that shift take place. And then just to go back to maybe reinforce the point, the, the, at the current price of 1900, you, the market cannot clear uh, if, if, a trillion, if a trillion dollars, which is 1% of global AUMs, and that's based on a, a Boston Consulting Group study. I mean, it's probably not the most accurate number in the world, it's kind of a fuzzy number, but order of magnitude, it's not a crazy number. So 1% of 100 trillion, you can't do it at today's price. Uh, yeah. I said earlier, it works out to six years of global mine production. And this other um, uh, sort of number that people toss around is, well, all the gold that's ever been mined is still above ground. So the supply of gold is much greater than what you're talking about, the, the annual global mine supply. But I think that's, that's a crock. And the reason I think it's a crock is because so much of that gold that's ever been mined is not in marketable form. It's not in 100-ounce bars or 400-ounce bars. It's on temple roofs in India. It's in high-end Tiffany jewelry, much of which my wife has. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just, you, just, you just can't bring it to market. So, you know, I would say you know, maybe 20%, that number is maybe 20%. But the only way you coax it out of other forms of... Um, yeah, you know, that it, that it's been shaped into is by higher prices. Yeah. So yeah. you know, I, I I'm pretty comfortable in this in this analogy that as long as we have very low interest rates and bonds are kind of out of the picture, that gold is next up, and um, I just don't think you need to hypothesize drastic scenarios. You know, we we could do that if we wanted to, but you don't have to. And you could approach a very kind of conservative investment committee and saying, look, you've got to allocate something to gold because bonds, look, what are bonds doing for you? And, and I yeah. think that's, that's kind of the, that's to me the most compelling thing you can say about why gold is headed higher and without even getting into um, some of the more macro extensions of that, of, you know, the implications of, you know, big budget deficits and, uh, rapid money creation this brings you to the question then of uh uh the pushback i always get on the gold thesis and from big institutions is it's too small to be investable that's what i hear routinely it's too small to be investable like well if you wait until it's big enough to be investable (laughs) (laughs) but how do you how do you answer that question that i mean it almost answers itself. I mean, if, if, if there's not enough to go around at these prices, well, gee, what does that mean? Right. Maybe there will be enough to go around at something much higher. And that Bill Simon, who was the Treasury Secretary in the 70s, uh, said the same thing, that, you know, once they opened the gold or closed the gold window and 
inflation was high. Uh, they were trying to figure out what to do about it. Uh, and and, and I, I'm sure people suggested that they back the dollar with, with gold once again. And Simon's answer was, well, there's just not enough to go around. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah. know, ever since then, there hasn't been enough to go around. Right. So, yeah, I mean, gold, you know, you the, the, the supply of physical metal which grows, by the way, at 1% or 2% a year. You know, you can, those are pretty basic numbers. Yeah. Just doesn't compare to the supply of financial assets, which, is, which, is being, which has been ramped up because of what the Fed and other central banks are doing. So, frankly, as long as we have a market in which stocks can trade at 25 times earnings, you know, good companies, and that, you know, we did an equal weight of the S&P uh, EBITDA. So we you know, basically try to reduce the uh, influence of the five or six stocks that are just completely crazy. It still works out to like 16 times enterprise value to EBITDA. Hmm. Whereas the gold miners, you know, totally shunned are trading around eight times. So, you know, if you're a value buyer, which I've always been, I mean, you can you can make a very compelling case right now that you know we've been talking about gold mainly, but you could also talk about gold mm-hmm. stocks, which are geared to the gold price. And if you believe, you know, Merrill Lynch is saying three thousand dollars on the gold price. I'm not sure how they came up with it, but you know, when you hear um, uh, Dalio talking about higher prices, not sure he's put a number out there, but you know, you do hear people, you know, respectable, just highly esteemed people talking about numbers three four five thousand dollars now and if you really believe that the the upside in gold stocks is just dramatic i mean these companies that you know most of what we own unless they're in the developing side where they're we're just building a mine or in the export but the ones that are producing trade at uh the big cap guys at free cash flow yields of five or six percent i'm talking newmont barrett Barrett will generate something like at current prices and expected costs, something like 30% of their enterprise value over the next four years, four to five years in free cash. Newmont would be similar. And then we have, you know, others that are down the the totem pole in terms of uh, recognition and smaller mid cap. They're trading at 20% free cash flow yields. Yeah. Yeah, John. We, we talk. We, we talk about the stocks. And I wanted to. I wanted to get onto these. And um, you know, you you had a chart in your piece this week, which I've used many times. It's such a great illustration of this. And that's the ratio of uh, the gold price to the Philadelphia Gold Bucks Index, the Huey. Um, because I think a lot of people they've seen gold go to you know break that magical two thousand dollars an ounce barrier, and, and then it's corrected. And we've seen all the the jarring jawboning around that. Which is to be expected in both directions, I guess. Um, but but we've had what you've so beautifully described as a nuclear winter, and I think during that time there was a hell of a lot of damage done to the psyche of people who either owned or tried to own gold stocks. Because during that nuclear winter, I mean, these things were just taken out behind the woodshed and clubbed. It's been it's been horrendous to watch. And there's this feeling that either it's going to happen again, which I suspect this time around may not be the case. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. But also um, the fact that these companies are in much better shape now. And yet, if people perceive that they've had a good run already, you look at that ratio of the gold price to the mining stocks, and it's still down at the kind of low level it's been, uh, I don't know, going back probably to the start of your fund. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just just talk for a little bit, if you can, about about that relative valuation of the gold mining stocks and and how you think about those in terms of that leverage you you mentioned earlier as a proxy for the for the gold price itself. Okay, you know, I think that's a good point because you're right. The the self inflicted damage that the mining company managements inflicted on themselves when gold peaked out at 1900 nine years ago was was considerable. I mean, their their uh, their balance sheets. Uh, were compromised by debt, by badly thought out takeovers, and also costs of mining rose sharply. So the profitability of the margin, the spread between the selling price and cost structure in those days wasn't even totally understood because everybody looked at cash costs. 
So fast forward to today, I would say you have a completely new breed of management that are more financially aware in terms of how to manage their balance sheets. They've been chastised by the, for the mistakes that they made. And if anything, I would say they're being too conservative uh, today because there are incredibly attractive acquisitions. The, 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 you, can, you can buy an existing mine in the market at a 30 or 40% discount to what it would cost to build it from, from scratch. And, you know, you just telescope the whole process. But anyway, so that's where we are today. So, so the, the, where we are, the mining company managements are talking about raising dividends, which is a good thing. The payout ratios are very, very low, but I think there's room for them to increase. And for the most part, you're not seeing aggressive takeovers. You're seeing mergers, but mergers of equals for synergies, they're, 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 there's rationale for it. I'm not 100% in favor of those kinds of mergers, but you're seeing it. And we are, we are not, and, and the cost side of the equation, the global cost of mining an ounce of gold is roughly $1,000. An important component of that is energy. So energy costs are, are tame. Foreign exchange is a big factor. So if you're, if you're operating in an emerging market, maybe 30 or 40% of your costs are in local currency. And, and so, so you're not seeing, at least now, I'm not saying that wouldn't happen, but we're not seeing now and for maybe the next three or four years, the kind of cost blowouts that, that, that wreck margins. And you know, so when you think about the economics of mining, if it's cost $1,000 to mine, and, and maybe two years ago, the average gold price was fourteen or $1,500, Today, the last this last quarter, the cost averaged nineteen hundred dollars, and the costs are still a thousand dollars. So their margins have doubled, but the stocks have, have not doubled. Um, and if you're bullish on the gold price as I am, and you think the gold price can go to twenty five hundred or three thousand over the next two or three years, and those costs, they'll surely rise, but they won't rise. And that's one thing you have to keep an eye on. The managements are still looking at life with a rearview mirror. Which, I, which I'm not, it's not a complaint, it's just an observation. And so I don't see them doing the stupid things for at least two or three more years that they did. <laughs> yeah. we, we, They'll we have do a it. stupidity it's just a of time. window here. <laughs> <laughs> we have a stupidity window. So you know, who knows what the world looks like in, in the, you know, that you know, three years from now in terms of inflation and that kind of thing. But anyway, right now, I mean, you, you're in a terrific spot for these companies to, to show rising earnings, dividend increases, share buybacks, and they're doing all of that. And as, and as shareholders, and you know, we're very vocal backseat drivers. I mean, we're, we're certainly, uh, uh, you know, letting our feelings be known that this is the right thing to do. We all, the one thing they're not doing is not buying enough of our portfolio that they should be buying because the returns on capital, but they'll, they'll get there. And maybe that'll <laughs> yeah. be a signal to, to kind of call it the day. So in what is your feeling then, John? Um, well, I know you're obviously bullishly positioned both on the bully and, on, and the miners, but if you were to take a, uh, let's say someone gave you a thousand dollars, uh, what would your allocation between the bullion versus the miners be right now? Would you be putting it all in the miners to get all the leverage, or do you think that you'd still focus on the on the bullion itself? Uh, to me, you know that the answer to that it's a little wishy washy, but you know I, I think you know it depends on who you are and what kind of investor you are. I think for people who are trying to play it safe, then you know weight your exposure towards metal. It's, you know, it's a super safe asset, own it the right way, own it in mm-hmm. physical form outside of the banking system. If you, and there are ways to do that, or you can own GLD, or you can own something like a Sprott physical trust, which we know the gold is there and it's, you know, it's backed hundred percent. So that's okay. And it's exchange traded. So you have liquidity, you know, overnight liquidity. But, if, you know, if you're more like me <laughs> and you want to, you you would like to max out your returns. You would you would weight your exposure heavily towards towards mining shares. It's inconceivable to me that they would 
not perform way better than the bullion price. And if you think the bullion price is going to even take the Merrill Lynch number 3,000, you know, there's, I just can't imagine even the, even the, the most, you know, big cap conservatively managed mining stocks wouldn't uh, go up by a factor of three or four X. To that, Don't they to need that to change? go up three times just at the current price to be trading at the ratios they were a decade ago? relative to gold? Yeah, I'd have to go back and look at that. I don't, I don't know the answer. Um, don't forget, I mean, the, the mining share space is very small. It might be yeah. $250, 300000000000 billion. Yeah. I think it's the same size as uh, Home Depot. <laughs> okay. Maybe one of these new uh, high-tech startups. Right. <laughs> you know, but, uh, yeah, there's, I just, I'm just astonished at the valuation. But yeah, it's a tiny space. So it wouldn't take big capital inflows to drive these stocks way higher. And they're still basically out of favor. So to me, you know, again, trying to max returns, I mean, I'm, I'm going to the, for, the, for the stocks versus the metal. John, just, just expanding on that a little bit, because we've, we've talked a little bit about how um, there's a lot of new people coming into the space and how, you know, it was starting to see endowments come in. And you know, I've had a couple of conversations yeah, myself, which, I mean, which, or, yeah, which, which confirmed that. For sure. But um, for, for people, I mean, this question is really for people who haven't invested in the, in the mine, gold mining space yet, but it's going to be incredibly useful for people who have and are still kind of sitting there with their hands over their eyes looking at the, the charts every day. But how do you, how do you go about identifying what, what are the things you look for? Is it management above all and then asset? Or how do you kind of assess a company, assess a project to figure out whether it's investable? Um, you know, those are, those are, that's a great question, but, but you, you, you look at management, obviously, and we, you know, I've you know, been around in this space long enough that I know pretty much everybody. Yeah. At Sprott, we have some really good geologists, nitty gritty analysts. So, you know, we, we scrub the assets very, very carefully. And that's very important. Uh, another consideration is, is political jurisdiction, asset safety. You know, you, you feel better about, Nevada or Canada in general or Alaska than you do about Mali or Burkina Faso or Indonesia, you know, but it's just, it's just a, it's relative because they're all ultimately bad. I mean, you know, when gold goes up is these companies will have a bullseye on their backs for higher taxation and it's, it's, it's inevitable and not, not to, not to, pour any cold water on the thesis, but I think with going in with your eyes open, you, you would have to expect that somewhere over the next three or four years, if gold does what I think it's going to do, and these companies produce the kinds of earnings and cash flow that I think they will, then you have to expect that there will be, have to be concessions made along the way towards to, to the local governments. So it's just something to think about. It's something we watch all the time. We're, we're, we're on top of you know, the nitty gritty of that. But to me, that's a small consideration compared to the, the change that will take place in terms of profitability, dividends, and all that sort of thing. Seems like the primary obstacle to the miners is just this same psychology that we get into. And we started talking about it at the very beginning, where despite the fact that gold has outperformed since 2000, uh, and has done phenomenally well this year in particular. You know, I think gold is up around 25%. The S&P is up eight. Um, you still can't have a polite conversation with someone where you suggest that gold is a meaningful asset class that deserves to be looked at on a par with stocks and bonds. Yeah, and I think, I think, I think that's right. And I think the reason is that the, it's threatening yeah. to the consensus. Yeah. And we haven't even gone there yet. But if you, if you extrapolate the trends that we've talked about, which is the, the emasculation of the Fed, populism, you know, et cetera, et cetera, it, it, it doesn't work out well for uh, mainstream investment thinking. And my neighbor, you know, just can't go there. Bloomberg Berry. Bloomberg Berry. <laughs> uh, yeah. So... So, sorry, Steph mentioned the psychology there, and that was someone else I wanted to ask you, John, because um, one of the biggest obstacles to making money trading 
um, or investing in the mining space is the psychological component because it's such a difficult horse to ride. And a lot of people are trying to time these things, which you know, to me is, is a one-way ticket to the nut house. But for someone who's managed to survive and keep himself relatively sane uh, over doing this over a 20-year you know, bull, bear, and nuclear winter cycle, how do you think about handling that psychological component? How do you try and minimize the damage that, that the volatility can do um, along the way? You know, some people would say that I am in the nut house <laughs> or have been rehabbing or whatever. Um, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I have to tell you that uh, believing this thesis, you know, when gold was doing badly and, you know, the stock's doing worse was very difficult. Um, and, and frankly, uh, whatever, you know, asked about it and, you know, a lot of what I wrote in 2013, 2014, basically was the long-term view. Yeah. I think that now a lot you know, Kane said in the long term you're dead. And I think a lot of a lot of people there are there are there are investors that remain committed to it that that suffered through those difficult years. But you know, frankly, I think it's the memory of that and the awareness of that in the mainstream that still keeps people away. So yeah. I just feel like much more uh, upside is there just because investors aren't. And um, I, as long as, as, as um, the mainstream stocks and, and forms of investment are doing well or doing okay, even if the S&P is only up 8%, you know, it's still, you know, still up 8%, people aren't going to look here. They're, they're going to look here. It'll only be very opportunistic kinds of investors, which is not, you know, not it's not the Ohio pension fund. Right. It's 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 this you know the smart money is starting to take notice. So the question, I guess, was on psychology, and and I think the psychology is still kind of like uh, on its back foot. It's not you know there there isn't high conviction other than you know if you look at someone like me. People are very tentative when they bring this up. I mean, I can tell you conversations we have with potential investors, and we might find, you know, in an institutional setting, an individual who's highly convinced that this is the right thing, but he's afraid to bring it up in his group, his peers, because you know, if you if, if you if you buy Amazon and it goes down thirty percent, well, you're okay. You're you're right right there with the rest of them. But if you buy yeah. Newmont and it goes down ten percent, you, you're you know you're you're, you're unemployed. Yeah, and that's where we are. Yeah, because uh, you know, we have these conversations. I can just tell you know that there's there's great you know people buy into the thesis. I mean, individuals will, but then to bring it up in an institutional setting where there's peer review, yeah, uh, it's just it's really tough. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me because I you know I think of I think of guys like you who've been in this industry and have the kind of tenure you have, um, who understand the thesis and have actually lived through the complete cycle, and you're really trying to sell that story to investors. And so for you to check that that thesis in moments of stress and moments of of poor performance. It's just a question of going back through your experience and and reassuring yourself and reminding yourself of times when similar things have happened and how it ultimately played out. But you know, any investors that come into either the Sprott funds or put um, mining shares in their own portfolios, they don't have that that repository of experience to fall back on. And so, you know, I, I just imagine you constantly having to you know talk people down from the roof who who bought into the thesis. And then suddenly get gut checked on on uh, at a given moment, like we so we saw when gold corrected from two thousand back to eighteen eighty. Now those of us who've been in the market for a long time recognise that for what it is, and sure enough, here we are. It's it's back through nineteen hundred, and and you can see all kinds of signs that there's real buying around those levels now. But if you bought into the thesis at twenty one hundred, just shy twenty one hundred, how how do you talk to those people and say? Listen, this is actually perfectly normal, and this is what gold does, and the thesis is still intact. Yeah, I mean that's it, that, it, that's a good question. I mean, it's it's hard um, <laughs> because these these little shakeouts, you know, 
the stock went from 21 to 18, well, you know, it'd be kind of normal. But when gold yeah. goes from 2100 to 1800, it's like the end of the world. Right. So psychology is fragile and conviction is, you know, it's scarce. I guess that is a way of saying, you know, for me as a, as a contrarian, you know, there's, there's a lot of upside, yeah. but again, you know, dealing with that in terms of handholding explanations and so forth. I mean, that, that's a real challenge. Um, and again, we're not, to, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to Druckenmiller or somebody like that, I mean, they're fine with that. Right. But if you're, yeah. you know, if you're, you know, managing the state pension fund, and you come up for a quarterly review, <laughs> you know, you, you've had a bad quarter. That's, it's the first thing out the door that they, that, that, that you know, is being criticized. Yeah. And so it's, there's a, there's a long way to go in terms of getting on the investment thesis here. You know, I'm seeing signs that it's taking place, but I'm, I'm, I, I think as long as people are comfortable with the consensus, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that things are going to just be okay. It's still a hard sell. I think of this as the flip image of central banking in terms of the psychology. You know, you gold's been outperforming since 2000, but people are terrified to take that bet. But the central banks around the globe have managed to make one disaster after another since 2000. And yet, for some reason, the confidence in their ability to steer us through any economic uh, outcome is resolute. I mean, it will not be shaken. Absolutely. It's it's Teflon. They they can do no wrong. And and because, you know, as Mike Solomon said, and I quoted him Mm -hmm. in my article, he said, you know, they they bailed us out time and again. But there may come a time that they can't, that they don't bail us out, that, they're, that they have lost their magic. Aren't and, we there? I mean, as you said, but with bonds at zero, now what are they, what are they, they doing? doing? What? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, we'll, we'll find out because Powell said we have tools. Yeah, <laughs> we have the right tool, and we have other tools. Yeah. Right. Like, like Groucho Marx says, you know, I'm a man of principle, and if you don't like my principles, I've got others. Yeah, no man. <laughs> well, I don't think I don't think there's any shortage of tools at the Federal Reserve, yeah. from what I can see. Anyway, that's the, that's that's the that's the good news. Hey, oh, um, uh, no, but. Now you're talking to me or the dog, Joe? I'm not sure. My favorite chair. Oh boy. Well, John, we've taken up. I've just seen the time; it's flown by, so we've taken up a lot of your time. But uh, there's one thing else I wanted to ask you if, you, if you've got time, and that's that just um, when you when you're putting a portfolio together now, uh, and you think of the majors. You know, you, you touched on Barrick and Newmont, the likes of the, you know those guys that, that are very very easy for people to get comfortable with just because of their size. Um, but talk about some of the mid-tiers, some of the exploration projects, uh, some of the places that are a little bit further up the risk curve and down the knowledge curve so people can get an understanding of, of how, you, how you try and identify um, companies in that space that are worth investigating further. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you, look, you look at Barrick or Newmont or... Um, Agnico, they're terrific companies. They do, they're really good at what they do. But that's also priced in to the valuation. Yeah. And, you know, again, I think a Barrick or a Newmont or Agnico will go up, you know, multiples of the gold price. You know, the, the, the delta will be substantial. And, and for a lot of people, that's, that's enough. Probably should be enough. But there are um, dozens of companies that are well below the, the awareness of most of generalist investors that have incredible metrics, um, good assets, growth. Uh, uh, for, for Newmont or Barrett to grow is really hard. They, they produce yeah. roughly five or six million ounces a year. Very hard to grow that. It's not a growth business. The growth comes from developing a mine, uh, maybe making an intelligent acquisition, bolt-on, that kind of thing. And you can only do that from a smaller base. And the companies with a smaller base are basically very underrepresented in the passive vehicles like GDX. 
And so that's where we find the most interesting values because they are, and I didn't mention this, but the, the mine life of the industry is, the, is very low. It's like the lowest in 30 years. And it doesn't mean the large guys can't extend their mine lives by doing near mine exploration and that kind of thing. But there are uh, these very good mid-cap, smaller cap companies that are uh, generating creative value for shareholders by either discovering more ounces because uh, they're smart geos or by successfully taking a, a mine that has yet to be built into production. And that's a very value-creating process. It can also be harrowing. It can also be difficult. And it's, I wouldn't recommend that for the typical investors. But if, you, if you're as steeped in it as we are, we feel comfortable uh, doing that kind of thing. And that's where we would expect, you know, if Newmont can go up three or four times, you know, the, these holdings that we have – we think can go up, you know, twice or three times that. And that's, that's been the history of this space since I've been in it. So, and, it's, and you know, when generalist money starts saying, well, gee, Numa's pretty fully valued, you know, what else can we look at? They'll, they'll, they'll look at things that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to picture the, the gold industry being fully valued. I can't even <laughs> conceive of such a thing. Right. These could be, the, for at least a few years, the next growth stocks because they're, they're going to have great year-over-year -year earnings. Uh, the smaller companies are on a path to produce rising earnings and cash flow, not and independent of the gold price. So, you know, I think they will get discovered. Um, you know, we, we need the wind at our backs in terms of the gold price. But, you know, assuming that, I mean, that's, that's where I want to be. Yeah. Hopefully they'll won't be discovered by the Robin Hood crowd because I don't need that roller coaster ride. <laughs> no, I think I think compared to things like Hertz and Sears, right. these these, <laughs> these, are, these companies are entirely too sturdy. Way right? more risky. <laughs> way more risky. Oh gosh. <laughs> John, look, it's 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 been a lot of fun yes, chatting with you. Thank, thank you so you. much for, yeah, no, for no, no, taking no, all this time. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, as have I. I assume this will be heavily edited. <laughs> Which, well, we'll we'll what, what we'll do is we'll cut we'll cut the three of us out and just leave the dogs. The dogs out. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We're, Our gold expert. Oh man. <laughs> Exactly. John, John, for people that want to find out more about, about the, the work you're doing at Sprite, how can they kind of uh, get in touch and find out more about the fund and what you do? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> That's, all right, don't worry. This, I'll, I'll, I'll find it out. Don't feel bad, John. I say the same thing when Grant poses that question to me. What's your Twitter handle? Every week. I don't know. <laughs> Every week. Go to our website. Yeah, I'll, I'll, don't worry. I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that in the outro. I'll, okay. I'll find the website. I'll, I'll do it myself. <laughs> Thank all right, you, John. John, thanks well, for spending the time with us. Hopefully, we all get to do this in person yeah, soon. Okay. Safe some travels point. to the land of fruit and nuts. <laughs> Take, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, Steph, there we go. I mean, look, John John has seen every cycle that, that there has been in the gold business, which is why it's uh, so fun to talk to him, because he really has lived this thing up, down, left and right, backwards and forwards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I mean, his perspective is really excellent very helpful particularly right now uh with gold doing what it's doing and and you know as we continue down this road of unprecedented monetary and fiscal policy and uh you know i, I love this notion of gold supplanting treasuries as sort of yeah. the uh you know the the conservative category and an asset allocation strategy. And, you know, I think it's a really strong case he makes. And uh, boy, um, it'll probably happen at a glacial pace, but, you know, it's got to be starting to chip away. Well, it's, it's, you know, I, I had a, a conversation uh, a week ago with um, the head of a, a large public endowment in the US, and it was a fascinating conversation. I mean, he's a, a lovely guy and, and you know, very smart and very concerned about all this stuff. And he's taken his gold allocation to two and a half percent and he's on his way to five and he was doing it through futures um, huh. at the moment you know at some point they just want to get to that allocation what they do with it once they've got the position is anybody's guess but you know it's interesting when you think about the the damage that's been done to that psychological component by some of these dive bombing runs in the futures market mm. you know it'd be interesting to see what happens if we have a whole lot of endowments just sitting there waiting 
for the chance to buy gold futures to get themselves positioned. You know, because two and a half percent of the endowment market is a hell of a lot of yes. money. It's what, two, <laughs> two and a half trillion dollars if, if John's numbers are right, right. And even if they're close to being right. Yeah. The, the, this market cannot even close to accommodate that kind of inflow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fingers crossed for that. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. Oh. Well, I mean, that's that's uh, that's it for us for another week. Um, if you want to read more of John's writing, and I, and I cannot encourage you to do that strongly enough, you'll find it at sprotusa.com. If you go there now, you'll find on the front page under the heading Insights, you'll find John's piece, Gold, the Simple Math. Now, we didn't get into single stocks, but if you um, if you, if you you uh, get in touch with John, you can find out more about uh, the portfolio, more about um, the kind of stocks that John buys. Uh, and as we've said, and hopefully has been, become self-evident through the course of this conversation, uh, this is a space that John uh, knows as well or better than just about anybody uh, in the space, which is why we're so thrilled to have him uh, join us. Um, Steph, I guess we say farewell to each other for another week. Yes. Uh, it's been super and terrific. Uh, well, and, and you leave me happy as always. But, but how, how, I'm going to put you on the spot now. How should people try and find you in the it internet? Up. It's a, Darren. I, I, <laughs> my Twitter handle, at SPOMBOY it's on Twitter. It's still the same. It's still the same, still the same. apparently. And it's still the same challenge to remember it. And mine is uh, at TTMYGH. We will say our goodbyes and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Cheerio, pip pip, and all that. <laughs> Nothing we discussed during the super terrific happy hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.